0: who had been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism, the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called sabbos also named Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart, show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost came, more importantly, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't just left it with us for historical record, but that we might learn from it, that we might be wise because of it, that our lives might be changed and challenged and shaped by it. We, we ask you, Lord, as a people, and also I ask, we ask you as individuals, Lord, let this word shape my life. Let there be a a thirst and an appetite in my heart for you to be all of this in my life, in my day, in this church and in this nation. Lord, open this word to us, I pray tonight. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, we looked this morning at, uh, at the same passage and I tried to make a clear point, and uh, almost to bring us to a sense of decision, that uh, is what I read here relevant to me, or is it purely historical? Was this a one-off, ne'er to be repeated? Is this something that I can look back on and say, gosh, it was wonderful then, but it's awful now? Or is this something that actually has been written uh, as as the first of many? And uh, as strongly as I was able, I... uh, made the point that actually Pentecosts have been repeated, not only individually, but corporately through the centuries. And uh, I'll re- refer to one or two by will of illustration. But the whole point is that when the church started, it started this way. This was the nature of what church means. There was a, a, a dynamic, uh, or dynamite, you call it what you like, that there was a, there was a movement of God in the early church which has been repeated whenever the church has been revived. And uh, if at the beginning of the year we start together to make resolutions to serve the Lord, to, to get back to, where, or to get into the place where God wants us to be, um, it will always take us back to being in a place which is biblically, uh, 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 which is of this biblical pattern. And, and that, that was where we were looking this morning that these promises, and there are so many of them, chapter 4, chapter, verse 4 of chapter 1, verse 8 of chapter 1, and on again repeatedly through Peter's address here on the day of Pentecost, um, promises to your children and to your children's children that, uh, that, that, that there is an inclusiveness across the generations in terms of the promise of the Spirit. How remarkable then that we should have got ourselves into such a mess, and that, uh, right across the, the, the situation, thinking Wales well yeah. right now, that what we see is so different from what we read. That, uh, and, I, and I would suggest to you that the subtle inference that this is a one-off unrepeatable has actually put it into our heads, well, then what we've got is all there is. And in many, many churches and many people's theologies, that kind of restriction remains. And uh, I was suggesting this morning that it's, it's not a safe biblical position to take. Uh, and yet the, the situation right across chapeldom as it, as it developed across Wales over the last hundred years reminds me of 2 Timothy 3, 5 where they have a form of religion but deny the power of it. And um, slightly different context. And yet the, the, the danger for us of having a form, isn't it true, of, of going along to church groups saying the right words, doing the stuff, but the dynamic is not evident in my life. And uh, we mustn't settle for that. And therefore, at the beginning of the year and through January this year, we're going to be looking at the early church and how exactly the Spirit of God moved in this period so that we might learn lessons for our own lives in terms of what we can expect God to do in our day. Now... I'm repeating myself, but I'll say it anyway. It was a huge event. It, it was of seismic proportions. That the people, the 120 people that were in that upper room, had never ever seen anything like this before. That uh, it, something wonderful happened. That there was a there was a wind blowing. I, I, imagine it. Some of us, if you're at a prayer meeting uh, early uh, in the middle of last year, now isn't it? Um, that I, I played a tape from a, was it in Canada or North, North, northern states, um, where they were having a worship meeting out on the prairie and uh, the tape recorder was running because the worship was being recorded and uh, there were no low-flying aircraft and there, there were certainly no trains in the vicinity to, to, to make it. But there, as they were worshipping, this thunderous noise started to overtake the worship. I and mean, you heard diff- individuals kind of crying out and shouting praise and so on, as this, this tremendous rush of wind just overtook the, the congregation. Well, I, I've never experienced that. It was good to have it on tape. I said, well, I've got a copy of my coat out there. I did think about playing it, but it's in my coat, not here. So we'll, we'll skip that one. But it, it, the, 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 the picture of this fire coming and then dividing and going on to individual heads, uh, unforgettable, amazing. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you? Well, I wonder whether you would. Because, you see, generally speaking, when this sort of thing happens, uh, some of us kind of, oh, yeah, and then other people, oh, not so sure about that. See, what about this, getting, this looking drunk business? And uh, it, it has to be said that, that sometimes when the Spirit of God comes powerfully, it, it's somewhat disturbing. Know, I like to be in control, don't you? That that uh you know I, I like to know what's going on. That and hey, on this occasion, the Spirit of God came so powerfully, they must have felt totally dwarfed. Mustn't they? When, when such a sound, a wind from heaven starts blowing, there must have been a sense in which this is bigger than we are. Yes? Yeah? That there, there is something overtaking us here that I am helpless in the face of. And sometimes we're not all too comfortable with that. can be threatened, can be challenged. Can, can, and in our day, talk of such things can remind us of things that we felt definitely uncomfortable with. And you think, well, is, is Peter whipping up emotion? I doubt that anybody had the idea, to be honest. Um, because nobody had taught them how to speak in tongues. They just found themselves doing it. But it, it, it must, in one sense, it was wonderful. In another sense, it must have disturbed. Because church was never the same again, was it? You know, after you'd been in that, as, as one man said after the Welsh Revival, that if you've been born in the fire, you can't live in the smoke. And that actually, I suppose, going to temple again and doing all this stuff again was never the same after an encounter with such presence of God, it must have spoilt synagogue forever. Yes? And the people that love synagogue may well have felt significantly uncomfortable with this Pentecost thing. But anyway, that that's the nature of the event. I've got three things that I want to draw out of it. The first of all, it refers to this question of baptism in the Spirit, that uh, we picked up this morning. Not only in uh, in, in verse 4, where Luke, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, refers to the promise of Jesus, but elsewhere in the promises, it's talked about this immersion in the Spirit, this filling, and yet, I, I use the illustration of the dishcloth, where the whole the whole being is saturated with the Spirit, and yet at the same time we are plunged in the Spirit. Something with the sound of the wind and the fire, and again, how common this is, when the Spirit of God comes on somebody, just a sense of praise and magnifying God. How common is that? That... that, that the instinct to want to tell and to preach. That's been repeated. The, the, the sheer impact on the life of the individual. Genuine baptism. And uh, the, 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 there are others, of course. Uh, the, the sheer scale of impact. It, it, later on in the month, we'll look in Samaria in chapter 8. And that, that's the case where, was it Elymas the magician who, who was just amazed? Was it Elimus? Simon Magnus. Simon Magnus was just amazed by what he saw and got out his checkbook and said, you know, okay, give me this power also. But there must have been something quite startling that made this man want to have that influence on other people too. That uh, we, we could look at the, the incident in the house of Cornelius where the Holy Spirit fell on them. In Ephesus, where it says that he came upon the believers. Now, so here, we, the first thing we say is that here is a baptism, something quite notable. The Spirit of God not coming imperceptibly, but coming forcefully, coming unmistakably. We must notice that. Now, there there are, in in the Acts of the Apostles, incidents where this was of a personal nature. Remember the Apostle Paul, converted on the Damascus road, going into Damascus, And the Lord speaks to Ananias. There's this man and he's praying, go, he's going to be my chosen instrument and uh, pray that he will be filled with the Spirit. And Ananias went and uh, not only was he filled with the Spirit, he got his sight back, a personal filling. The other references. On some occasions with the disciples, it would appear that they were filled and filled again. Chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 31 has repeat references. That there are other occasions where it, it almost seems a bit as if the Spirit of God just overwhelmed a group of people. I, I, and that was the case in Cornelius's house, and again in Ephesus. That, that, and there, there have been so many occasions where when the Spirit of God has been poured out, and that lots of people have been influenced at the same time. I, I was kind of sat thinking about this this afternoon, and uh, you know, the... The suddenness with which, the unexpected timing with which, how God comes sometimes, in when the Spirit of God is poured out. Now I was thinking, uh, as my, I, my mind went on my bookshelves, you see, I have all these kind of prompts in front of me. <clears throat> and David Brainerd, missionary, man sick with tuberculosis in, uh, in the American Outback, praying, seeking God, and suddenly the whole situation is transformed and people start coming to Christ by the dozen, American Indians, people with no Christian background at all, and there, there is an outpouring of the Spirit. I, I uh, looked down a couple of shelves and thought about Evan Roberts. Now, here's an interesting coincidence of, of timing, if you like, that uh, he went to some special meetings, we'll be remembering it in a couple of years' time, and he went to a blind Nanak, out towards Newquay, um, meetings were held by Seth Joshua. The Spirit of God came on him, and in Evan Roberts' own words, he was baptised in the Holy Spirit. He then felt God speak to him. He was a student in newcastle Emlyn, and he felt God speak to him and say, go back to your home church. So he went back to the home church in Lucca, uh, in near Planetly and uh, asked the deacons if he could hold special meetings. That's what he felt. and said, well, you can hold them in the Sunday school room. Now, not in the chapel, And so he called together, called, and some young people. No no promise, no evidence. You you're actually sailing against the wind in terms of what, but he had a sense of what God was going to do. And he held this meeting and then people got converted and he was invited into Moriah Chapel to hold some more meetings and the whole thing just, and then suddenly the Spirit of God came and there was an outpouring, if you like, a corporate baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the intensity of it, the power of it, is something I just need to take stock on. That someone spoke to me after this morning and with, with a sense of uncertainty. I'm not quite sure. I think I have. Well, hey, do you know... I'm, I'm running ahead of myself here. But, do you know, it's okay to say, Lord, I'm so grateful for what you've poured in my life of the Spirit of God. But I know... There's more yet. Can I say, it's, oh, it isn't, have I or have I not? Am I in the club or am I out of it? That, that, that's not what needs... Hey, th- there is no shame in saying, dear God, I am still thirsty. I still need you to pour powerfully into my life the, fl- the river of the Holy Spirit. I'll come to that. But the, the, this is the first thing. It was a genuine baptism. One that is promised to generations. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 3. This is John the Baptist. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now then somebody will say, but David, that's, that's referring to conversion, isn't it? Well, what was your conversion like, man? Well, doesn't it say in 1 Corinthians 12, um, so it is with Christ, we were all baptised by one Spirit into one body. Surely that's referring to, the, to conversion. Yes, it is. And, and doesn't it say in Romans that if, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him? Well, that's referring to conversion, isn't it? Yes, it is. Notice, pause for a minute. Notice, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 is the verse that is often raised in saying that baptism doesn't refer to a fullness experience, but to conversion. That 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen that by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Tell me. That uh, who is doing the baptism, the baptizing? Well, the Spirit is. And into into whom are we being baptised? Well, into Christ, into his body. The the analogy is exactly the same. I I come into Christ and I have Christ in me. Immersion, what is it? And infusion, whatever you want to call it. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. But that's the Spirit of God baptising me into Christ. That's conversion. Actually, here, according to John the Baptist, that's not the sequence. Here... Jesus is the baptizer and he is baptizing me into the Holy Spirit. Can you see that the agent and, and the subset are different? In, in conversion, the Spirit of God through conviction of sin and creating faith in my heart brings me to new birth and I am, I am brought into Christ and Christ is brought into me. Right? 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. At baptism in the Spirit, the, the order, if you like, the agency is, is reversed. That The Spirit of God, that the Lord Jesus is the baptizer and I am being plunged into the Spirit and the Spirit is bringing fullness into me. If I can clarify that, that what, what we're talking about here in the experience of the, of the apostles and in century after century, something quite definite, something quite unmistakable, something of God, something credible, transforming. That's the first thing, genuine baptism. The second thing that we have from from Acts 1 and leading on into Acts 2 is just this sense of power. Now, again, there's something that cries in your heart here, isn't there? When you read this, and when you read on towards the end of chapter 2, what, what a stark difference we see between the Apostles at the time prior to and after the resurrection, and what we see, and particularly Peter. Peter is the man who's frightened of the response of confessing Christ to a servant girl, right? And uh, here he is, standing up on the day of Pentecost, preaching to thousands, so that thousands come to faith in Christ. Well, what's happened to the man? And uh, I I I read through the whole of chapter 1, because... mm, I don't want to make too much... I don't know what you think about this Matthias business and this casting of lots. Um, strange, really. Um, but how very different to what we find from chapter 2 onwards. You see, I, I, I have my suspicion that prior to chapter 2, that the whole, well, Judas is finished, therefore we need to find someone to put in his... But I understand the logic. But it was inadequate, wasn't it? Right? Because you've got twelve apostles, but just a minute. In verse eight, that the the Lord Jesus is saying, "You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth." You, hey, Peter, do you think twelve will be enough? Honestly, now, do, do you think just adding one is going to do the trick? I I, I have a suspicion here that we we have men here. Operating at a kind of well, let's let's organise it level. But when we come to chapter two, there's no more of that. That there is an infusion of power that actually releases people and gets the job done. There, there's a, a dynamic empowering for mission. It's interesting as well. How let, let me go back to Luke twenty four, and he took that. This is, the, Luke twenty four, Jesus after the resurrection. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So there's the commission. And you are my witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. There's something extra after the day of Pentecost, isn't there? There's a, there's a power in the lives of the believers. And we commented this morning, particularly in what we seek to do for God, that uh, how much we need the moving of the Spirit in church, in Aina, how, how absolutely essential it is that we don't just go about it, well, we need another one, let's have a vote. <laughs> that ain't going to build the church, I suspect. But this power also, and again... There's much that we could say here. Um, How it not only gave them an impartation that was life-changing, but also gave them this equipping for their ministry. That outstanding verses in 17 and 18 of chapter 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will, prophesy." How would they learn to do that? that, uh, Your sons and your daughters doesn't say how old they would be. I, I think that some of the movements of the Spirit today, which have seen young children moving in the Spirit, what a lovely, lovely expression of Acts 2, 17 and 18. But parents, wouldn't that just be a joy to your heart? Yeah? I was going to give some illustrations then, but I shall refrain. But uh, the, 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 the whole sense of, of spiritual gifts following from this empowering... And uh, the, the, the preaching and the, the praising and the praying that with this speaking in tongues. That's a lovely thing. Now, what a bad press over the years uh, speaking in tongues has had. I've uh, been called the least of all the gifts. So I've never ever found um, the, te- the verse in the Bible that actually says that. That here is a, a prayer language that's given to an emerging church to equip them to get the job done. What a lovely thing that God, at times when we don't understand situations adequately, will give us a facility whereby we can pray from our hearts and not just our heads. That when my reason and my understanding of situations doesn't go as far as I need it to do, to think that there's a language of the Spirit whereby I can pray and pray accurately in a way that I could never do if I was going simply on my understanding. What a precious gift. How lovely. How how, how delightful that my sons and my daughters should prophesy. That that God should speak just through a child and show us a way forward, give us insight into his will. How liberating. That it it doesn't have to come just from an old man in a pulpit. How magnificent. What a a lovely scenario the Spirit of God spreads before us because this is a baptism of power. and the, that how wonderful that he should release such spiritual gifts in the hearts and lives of ordinary people. You don't have to be important, you just have to be available. What, what a change! How different Pentecost was to everything that preceded it. That's the second thing. A genuine baptism, a baptism of power. But then, and this is why I read chapter 1 before we came to it, that uh, a sought-for baptism. Did you, did you notice that, uh, well, that there are two references at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, although there are many more, of, of this promise of the Spirit. Do you remember when Jesus on the great day of the feast stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink? Yeah, remember? John seven thirty-seven. And out of his innermost being would flow rivers of living water. What did it say? This he said about the Spirit, who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Remember the passage? And uh, that here the, the promise is being realized in the hearts of people. But uh, uh, in chapter 1, of course, the, the promise hadn't been realized. Jesus himself said in verse 4, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father. That's a lovely, lovely connotation that goes with that. And, and therefore in verses 12 to 14, we have this picture of 120 people meeting together and praying. There is such importance here. The Spirit of God is to be sought for. We are to long after Him. We are to seek Him. We are to cause for something to become so attractive to us that our desire and appetite for other things begins to wane because it's God I want. Does that ring true in your heart? I, I believe in our day, there is a great need here for prolonged, persistent, purposeful expectancy and, and praying and seeking. We are in such an instant, penny in the slot mentality. Well, I, want, I asked to be filled with the Spirit, I went to a big meeting, and so-and-so laid their hands on me, but nothing happened. I, hey, I'm not sure that's the, what, what we have here. We, we have 120 people earnestly seeking God. Right? It's God I need. They—they're not. I need an experience. Well, I, you probably do. You probably need hundreds. But that's—that's it, it, that's not the direction of their seeking. They're seeking God and His promises and His purposes. And to my mind, there's no substitute for that. That and and through the events in the Acts of the Apostles, in in chapter eight, Samaria. Um, the, 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 the Samaritans come to faith, they have to send to Jerusalem, right? Bring the, why they had to send to Jerusalem and bring the apostles, in, I'm not quite sure, but it would give a time delay, wouldn't it? And these people that had come to faith, oh, you need the Holy Spirit, oh, we need the Holy Spirit, oh, you better get the apostles, oh, the apostles are coming, how long? A couple of days, come on, let's pray. Yeah? And uh, there, there's, there's no substitute for that. The, the, the sense, oh, well, it didn't work for me, therefore I'll manage without. Hey, the the, 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 the early church earnestly sought God until, Well, oh, David, has sought for 30 years. Well, oh, okay, uh, keep seeking. Maybe there's some other issues you need to resolve as well, but keep seeking. Keep seeking God. Pursue Him. Long for Him. Make God the longing and passion of your heart. Just get get him in focus. Don't be satisfied. Don't let let events and conferences and the latest CD and books, good and helpful as they are, don't let that become a a kind of religious substitute for your earnest longing and seeking that God in his fullness would pour into me. Do you understand? That's the cry of the heart that is reflected, that produces a Pentecost. Uh, As I've said on on a number of occasions before, there is is a slightly different emphasis sometimes. People can read a chapter like this and say, ah, what we need is unity. Get everybody in the same place and God will come. Uh, Inferring that if we just, you know, God is waiting for us to kind of put the things in order and then he can come. Or that, uh, well... Oh, there's a key somewhere. There's a prophecy that was circulated in Wales a couple of years ago that said that God had, had, had hidden a key and we had to find it. And when we turned it, that the door would be open to revival. That kind of thinking bothers me deeply. That hey, if we have to get, re- if if we have to turn a key, maybe we- revival will never come. Is, is God's moving and God's sovereign way? Is it of God or is it of me? Right, and I can take great encouragement there. Oh well, I, I, David, you, you, you don't know what I'm like. God will never baptize me in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I've got this. But well, hey, isn't that lovely? That that God doesn't wait until we're perfect. Do you Remember that the situation in Cornelius, elsewhere. That that. Sometimes, if you've been praying for years and years, you say, oh Lord, fill me with your spirit, and you think, oh, well, perhaps tomorrow. And these people have only got through half a sermon. It's not fair, is it? Yeah? And the Spirit of God fell on them. But hey, when's the sermon? Get me in the sermon. Let the Spirit of God come on me in such a way. But the, the point being that the, the early church had the promise and sought God for the fulfillment of the promise. And I just want to tell you that there is a promise outstanding of your life. That it is to you and your children and your children's children. That there is a fullness of the Spirit to enrich and empower and to make you a better witness. I I was talking to Pete. I'm sorry about your book, Pete. It's just got a bit wet. But uh, I I was talking to Pete. I I just want to read you something. hope you'll just sit patiently and then I'm through. It's uh, Sherwood Wirt's account. Uh, he, he was one of Billy Graham's closest associates. And, uh, and at the beginning of his book, Billy, um, he talks about Billy Graham at the, at the early days of his ministry. And uh, how he, came, he was coming over to the UK to hold evangelistic meetings. And uh, there was a meeting held at Hildenborough Hall for the people from, from the UK, leaders, to meet with him, to be introduced to him. And uh, he got there slightly earlier, and there was a youth conference going on where Stephen Alford was speaking. And so Billy Graham went to Stephen Alford's meeting. And in Stephen Alford's meeting, he preached on Ephesians 5, don't get drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And uh, when, uh, after he'd preached, and like a good preacher, he sits down and puts his head in his hands, thinking, have they, are they all asleep or have they all run out, um, like preachers do. Mr. Alford said, Billy, I just want to ask you one question. Why didn't you give an invitation? I would have been the first one to come forward. You've spoken of something I don't have. I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life too. This is Billy Graham speaking. Billy told his biographer, John Pollock, I was seeking for more of God in my life. And I felt that there was a man who could help me. He had a dynamic, a thrill, an exhilaration about him I wanted to capture. They arranged to meet in Wales where Billy was scheduled to preach in a town named Pontypreth. Hey, <clears throat> 11 miles from the home of the, of Alford's parents, in a room in a stone hotel in Pontypreth, just behind that well thing in the middle of the town it was, Stephen and Billy spent two days together. Billy told Stephen, this is a serious business. I have to learn what this is that the Lord has been teaching you. The first day was spent, according to Stephen, on the word and on what it really means to expose oneself to the word in quiet time. They spent the hours turning the pages of the Bible, studying the passages and verses. And Billy prayed, Lord, I don't want to go on without knowing this anointing you've given my brother. That night, Billy preached to a small crowd. The sermon was ordinary, according to Stephen, and not the the Welsh kind of preaching. Billy gave an invitation, but the response was sparse. The next day they met again and Stephen began concentrating on the work of the Holy Spirit by declaring there is no Pentecost without Calvary and and that we must be broken like the Apostle Paul who declared himself crucified with Christ. He then told Billy how God completely turned his life inside out. It was, he said, an experience of the Holy Spirit in his fullness and anointing. He explained that where where the Spirit is truly Lord over the life there is liberty, there is release, the sublime freedom of complete submission to one, of oneself in a continuous state of surrender to the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. According to Stephen, Billy cried, Stephen, I see it, that's what I want. His eyes filled with tears, something rare with Billy. It seemed he had no appetite that day, only taking a sip of water occasionally. Stephen continued to expound the meaning of the filling of the Spirit in the life of the believer. He said it meant bowing daily and hourly to the sovereignty of Christ and to the authority of, his, of the Word. From talking and discussing, the two men went on their knees, praying and praising. It was about mid afternoon on the second day that Billy poured out his heart in a total prayer, a prayer of total dedication to the Lord. According to Stephen, all heaven broke loose in that dreary little room. It was like Jacob laying hold of God and crying, Lord, I will not go- let thee go unless you bless me. They came to a time of rest with prayer, Billy exclaiming, My heart is so flooded with the Holy Spirit. They alternately wept and laughed, and Billy began walking back and forth across the room. I have it. I'm filled. I'm filled. This is the turning point of my life. This will revolutionize my ministry. Said often that night, Billy was to speak to a large Baptist church nearby. When he rose to preach, he was a man absolutely anointed. Billy's Welsh audience seemed to sense it. They came forward to pray even before the invitation was given. Later when it was given, Alford said the Welsh listeners jammed the aisles. There was chaos. Practically the entire audience came rushing forward. Stephen drove back to his parents' home that night, deeply moved by Billy's new authority and strength. When I came to the door, he said later, my father looked at my face and asked, what on earth has happened? I sat down at the kitchen table and said, Dad... Something has happened to Billy Graham. The world is going to hear this man. He's going to make his mark on history. The heavenly reservoir had overflowed. Potter <clears throat> I'm sorry to, for a, a long reading like that, but I think it makes the point. You understand? Is it because of his, his, his evangelistic organisation? No, it's not. It's because he was a man who came to a... This is, and I asked if we could preach before we came to communion. He was a man who came to the cross and surrendered his life entirely and, and pleaded with God that he would fill him with the Spirit. And look what happened. Young person, what might happen tonight if you do the same thing? Do we need a baptism of the Spirit or not? In our day, in your life... Is, is this a, 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 the, the, the fundamental thing needed in your own life and ministry? Speak comes to play. Let's just bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we, we thank you that your promises are true. We thank you that what we have read and what we see in the pages of your word are there to encourage us and cause us to seek you. We thank you that the promises that the early church read and referred to in chapter 1 are still our promises. We thank you that, Jesus, that you are still the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. We thank you that since that day, in life after life, in in church after church, you have come and, and sent the Holy Spirit powerfully. Lord, we ask you, over this month, as we, as we let these truths begin to s- distill into our hearts, Lord Jesus, that you will pour out your Spirit on us as a people and on, on, on the, the, the initiatives that we do in Einan and beyond I- in the coming days. Lord, we don't want to do it unless you pour out your Spirit on it. Lord, we need a Pentecost together. But Lord, we also need a Pentecost in our own heart. We thank you for what you did for Billy Graham, not very far from here. And we say, Lord, I have the same thirst in my heart. I have the same longing. And so, Lord Jesus, tonight we come to the same cross. We we come and lay our lives down before the same Saviour. And as we take, Lord, the emblems of your dying, we pray that you will pour into our hearts the power of your resurrection. In the name of Jesus.